I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to The Stages Podcast. It's great to have your company. And for the next two episodes, you will be in great company. As was I during a recent visit to Queensland's Gold Coast where I caught up with the legendary Jack Webster. Jack is one of the country's favourite song and dance men, having wowed audiences in a stellar resume of musical theatre performances, which include Tulsa in Gypsy, Al DeLuca in A Chorus Line, Mary Sunshine in Chicago, Drake in Annie, and Tap Daddy in Hot Shoe Shuffle, just to name a few. His consummate skills extend to choreography and direction, and he's appeared in iconic films from the Oscar-winning Oliver to Strictly Ballroom. Jack has worked with and learned from the best across a host of platforms and genres. He expands on these experiences and offers fascinating insight into the evolution of the musical theatre in Australia, chiefly because he was there, observing, celebrating, expounding and executing a well-honed craft. Jack is the original quadruple threat. He can sing, he can dance, he can act and he can charm. As you'll see in this compelling double episode celebrating the career and dynamic artistry of Jack Webster. Jack Webster, how lovely to see you again. And you too, Peter. Here on the sunny yes. Gold Coast. On the lovely Gold Coast. A beautiful day it is today too. It is. It's one out of the bag. Freezing cold, but beautiful. You think it's freezing? <laughs> oh, well, it is to us, of course. In when you're a local, I guess. Yeah. Well, I've been here for seven and a half years now. So, mm. um, you know, you do get acclimatised. But Sydney can get pretty cold. And well, Sydney be... gets really cold. But, but look... We we are used to um, temperatures in the twenties and up, mm. and now we the mornings and evenings are getting down to you know ten and below that, so it's uh, mornings are very crisp. Uh, do you still experience that humidity in summer months? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's uh, well, fortunately, I I've got air conditioning which I use copiously in. Um, in the humid months, because it is it is terrible. But uh, you uh, you know that before you move up here, uh, there are people who moan about oh it's so you well move. <laughs> <laughs> Stop winding. Yes, there are other places to live. Mm. Well, Jack, you're you're one of the country's favourite song and dance men. Oh, thank you for saying that. No, you you absolutely are, and oh. uh, you've been on uh, my, my wish list. People say I say this to everybody, but it's absolutely true. When I started this podcast, Jack Webster was somebody I wanted to talk to. Oh, 
Good heavens. Oh, no, oh, no pressure then. No pressure. You'll be all right. <laughs> now, so what's your first memory of being on stage? Um, I don't know. It would have been when I was, after I was seven years old, I suppose, after I went to dancing class and then learned a couple of numbers and um, was thrown into a little local concert by my wonderful, wonderful dance teacher. I mean, I, I owe her so much. I went to this uh, school which taught everything uh, with a teacher who had never been on stage in her life. And in fact, years later, I was we were in London doing Hot Shoe Shuffle and she came to see the show, one matinee, and we had a meal between shows. And um, she said, I don't know how you do it. And I said, what? She said, what you do, get up on stage and, and and I said, but you taught me how. And she said, yes, but I could never do it myself. <laughs> she she was had absolute stage fright, would never perform herself, but could teach all these other kids to, to do it. What was her name? Jean Pierce. Um, I last saw her the day before her 84th birthday in 2012. And uh, she died a couple of years ago, unfortunately. But um, she was so brilliant. And what she did with all her kids was she gave us the joy of dance, um, which will never go away. You know, from a very early age, she would laugh if we made a mistake. She wouldn't reprimand us. Um, and so we all loved what we did. And she loved comedy. And she loved... Uh, giving something a go, which I realise now was so um, so beneficial to me in later years, that, yeah, I'll give it a go. That all stems from Jean. You know, oh, we'll try this, we'll try this sort of number now. Oh, there's a bit of comedy in there. Throw that in, you know. And that's um, virtually how uh, my training, my years at dancing school, were like. So, so you met Jean when you were seven? Seven, yes. Was that a case of, you know, your, your sister was at ballet dance no, classes? No, I had a cousin. I can do that? No, I <laughs> sort of. Well, no, I had a cousin who was a ballerina in a small uh, ballet company called the International Ballet Company. In its day, in the, in the uh, 30s and 40s, really, during the war, that company rivaled Ninette de Valois' company and, in fact, was larger um, but through the years, Ninette de Valois' company succeeded and Mona Inglesby was <laughs> the name a, of the, the woman who... That's uh, a and she, name. She, Yes, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? I actually did class with her when I was about 16, but I was so terrified to go up and say, oh, my cousin was June Summers. And um, the first ballet I ever saw was, uh, I think I was about eight, when the, the company came to Leeds, my hometown, with June dancing Odette Odile. So Swan Lake was the first ballet I ever saw, and I was absolutely rapt. And anyway, Mona, Mona Inglesby, um, I googled her, and she, I think just after the war, she rescued a whole, this huge file of, oh, I can't remember the name of the Russian guy, the... the not the Kirov files, or some Russian man who had accumulated all of this um, material, which was all of Petipa's ballets, his notation for Petipa, for, for his ballets, and another choreographer who was 
at the same time uh, a, a big name in the ballet world too um some stuff of the ballet russe uh costume designs uh m music no set designs yeah. all this it was a huge file that was about to be chucked out the, um, and she rescued it and in fact i think there's a plaque in london somewhere commemorating that um mona inglesby rescued all of this material and it's possibly why we still can see Swan Lake and Sleeping Beauty in their today original in their original form mm -hmm. yes so and my cousin June and I worked with some people who had been in that company after it broke up um, and they all said uh, she had beautiful arms and hands uh, that was the, the main thing about her that everybody said and um can I, i'll just so, stop you there yes one of the famous nicholas brothers uh -huh. said a similar thing i about was gonna you, i was they? gonna come up come <laughs> back on that um but yes when we were in hot shoe shuffle in london one of the nicholas brothers harold came to see a performance and we dedicated the performance to him and at the end he came up and danced with us we did a time step with harold nicholas hello yeah. you know and um and he said to me, I had beautiful arms and hands. And I said, well, I don't need another compliment for the rest of my life. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, but I, possibly that's a genetic throwback, is it, to, yeah, to my be. cousin. And as far as I know, we are the only two people in our family to have been dancers. I have been try I tried to get back uh, to see if, there were, if there's a, a dancing or performance in my family i can't find anything at all so um so at the moment it's just june and me <laughs> what was it like growing up in leeds oh the best part was going to dancing school right. was, I mean, was there, were there much uh, cultural references around you there or? were because of course leeds has, has had since oh for many many years one of the great uh, music festivals of great britain um, not that we ever did that. We weren't a theatrical family. Uh, the only thing we ever did do was go to, pan to the Pantos at which Christmas. Which was an, an annual tradition. Yeah. Which was an annual tradition. And, and, and when I was a kid, there were um, three big theatres in Leeds. There was the Grand, which exists now, and the Theatre Royal, which was pulled down, and the Empire, which was pulled down. And so we would go to, at least we'd get three Pantos in. But we never saw a musical or a play or any, anything like that. But um, I got all my jollies from going to dancing school and we did so many different types of dances. Uh, my favourite was um, song and dance and tap. Uh, and, I'm not surprised uh, at not, that. Uh, not surprisingly. <laughs> um, but I did... One of the dancers at the dancing school, I don't know if they, you want this, but um, Patricia Ruan, her name was, and when she was a child, she went to London to audition for the Royal Ballet School, which she got into. And as she grew up, she became one of the top dancers and new dancers and sort of contemporary ballet as well as uh, classical ballet dancers in Great Britain. She was lauded. She was a, a good friend of um, Nureyev's. And um, she last, the last time I heard of her, she came to Australia some years ago to um, put on uh, Manon.
for the Australian Ballets some years ago in Melbourne. She did ring me, but I didn't see her. But uh, she became very well respected in the ballet world. And I think it was on the fact that she had gone to London and, and got accepted into the Royal Ballet. They thought it might be a good idea if I followed suit. So I went down to London when I was, I think, 13 and auditioned for the Royal Ballet. And, well, dance-wise, I was a shoe-in. I danced very well. I knew I, knew I had. Um, but then they set us down at a desk and gave us a, um, an education, a, you know, a school exam, which I didn't understand at all. It was a total dyslexia there. And um, so I couldn't go because of that, because they had a high school education standard, which I wasn't up to. Oh. Um, I'm sure that's changed now. No, I don't. I don't. I don't know. Right. But that was the reason I didn't go. But I, I, I'm sorry to say, when my mother told me, she, she was in the office being told the news, and I was outside, and she came out, gave me the news, and I said, "Wow, well, well, I wouldn't have been able to do tap anymore, would I?" <laughs> <laughs> Cost so much money to take me to London, and that was my answer. Ungrateful child. But I think I think it all worked out pretty all right. well in yeah, the end. Pretty good. So pantomime, I imagine that was the first live theatre experience that you had. My first show. I will mention my first show though, which was the boyfriend. It was in Scarborough as a summer season, and uh, my dad, Jean, came to the shop that I was working at. We used to have Wednesday afternoon closing in those days. I don't know why. And she came in the morning and said, they want an extra dancer for a production of The Boyfriend over in Scarborough for the summer. Do you want to go for it? Of course. So she came in the afternoon when the shop closed. We drove over to Scarborough. I auditioned for two people, a man and a woman. They were directing the show between them and playing the leading roles, Tony and Polly. And as it happened, my song and dance routine of the day was Don't Tell, Don't Bring Lulu, which was a 20s number. Um, yes, you got the job. And I didn't go home. They found me digs and I went into, I started rehearsals the next day. How old were you? 15. 15. Wow. I was just 10 weeks out of school. Mm. And, um, and my mother had to resign from the job for me and come over to Scarborough and bring me clothes. <laughs> and, uh, and we opened the following week. So anyway, I'm going to fast forward now to, I think it was 99 or 2000. And I'd been asked to play Eddie Ryan in the production company's production of Funny Girl with Caroline O'Connor and John O'May. And Nancy, Nancy was playing mother, and I was playing this character, um, Eddie Ryan, who is hardly in the movie. I got the movie out and I said, oh, yes, I could do that. It'd be a breeze. Well, the part is enormous in the, in the, stage, in the show. stage show. Anyway, I'm at Raheen, the Pratt Mansion drinking champagne for the launch of it all having a wonderful time and behind me I hear this voice say I spent a long time in London um, doing The Boyfriend and I 
turned around and I said, I said, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I heard somebody mention the boyfriend. And I said, that's very close to my heart because it was my first pro show. And this woman said to me, where did you do it? And I said, oh, it was a summer season in Scarborough in 1961. And she said, I co-directed and played Polly. I'm opposite the woman who gave me my first job. That's amazing. What was she doing Patricia in Patricia Vivian Lau, her name was. She was Pat Vivian hmm. in... in the show that I did, and she came to Australia. And I'll tell you who else was in the, the show, playing Dulcie, was Julia Blake, the exactly. actress. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. He married Terry Norris. That's right. Yes. And she was, uh, the, she did The Boyfriend as a fill-in before she came to Australia to get married. And Pat followed on very shortly and married a, an Indian man called Lal. And so she became... Patricia Vivian Lal, and did a lot of work for Vic Opera um, for many years. And so here we are, face to face, never having seen each other since 1961. Get and, out. And did you keep in touch? We not time? only kept in touch, she had written this two-hander plus a pianist, a musical of um, Gracie Fields. And she asked me to do it with her. She was Gracie and I was various men in her life. And we did it as a morning melodies tour around Victoria, very successfully. And so we actually got to not just keep in touch, but work together after that. But, but this, so, this business is full of those lovely It is incredible. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the show, the pantomime that I did after my first one, which was at Leeds Grand, um, with Morecambe and Wise... And the second one I did was, was in Scotland, in Edinburgh, called A Wish for Jamie, which was absolutely beautiful, a Scottish pantomime. And it was devised and directed by Freddie Carpenter, who, of course, was Australian, mm. was an Australian dancer in his youth, went over to London and ended being uh, one of Britain's top directors. And directed a lot for JC. And then came yeah. back and directed Irene and No No Nanette, both of which I was in. Mm. So I first met, you know, Freddie Carpenter in, in Edinburgh doing A Wish for Jamie. And um, and later on, all those years later, there there we were again in Melbourne in, in two shows. So is the boyfriend solidifying the desire to be part of this business and to work in theatre? Oh, well? I always knew. Oh, the, oh no, I, I mean there was. My parents wanted me when I left school to get some something to fall back on. I had no intention of falling anywhere except forward, um, in, straight into the business. That's all I ever wanted to do. From the age of seven, um, I said I'm going to be a dancer, and I never broke from that at all. What, what dance were you were you observing? We did everything. Right. But did you uh, say MGM musicals or were you oh yeah oh yes we yeah. went to went to the pictures mm -hmm. to see all the musicals and um, I always wanted to be Judy Garland I didn't want to be Fred uh, Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly <laughs> I wanted to be Sid Charisse. <laughs> who I finally ended up working with. and um, That was in Nanette? But that was in No, No, Nanette, yeah. yes. But, um, yes, that, they, they were the influences. All the, but also, um, in, the, in the 1950s, um, television 
was doing a lot of variety shows and um, cho choreographers were coming up, Paddy Stone and uh, other people were coming along and they were doing choreography on, on television and we had that to watch and that, that's where Gene came into it. Oh, I saw this last night on the telly, let's do this. So we were doing, sort of trying to do our own version of modern dance um, growing up. Where had those choreographers come from? That they'd been um, in the court well, of ballet, or yeah, well, in shows yes, they'd been the in shows, and yeah. they just came into their own. Also, they'd been choreographing stage shows and reviews. Um, Paddy had done a, a fair amount of review choreography, but some, in television, they were always kind of there. And I ended up working uh, very much for one particular choreographer, Pamela Devis, who did uh, mainly television. Uh, there was a program called Sunday Night at the London Palladium, which was a weekly vi variety one-hour show. And, um, and that was live? That was live, yes. Oh, oh. That was live. Um, and there, there would be various stars. One of the, the main star that I remember being so impressed with was Jack Benny, who was one of the big stars on that show. And he worked, he had a straight man who was a pop singer, who was on the bill. He, the pop singer closed the first half. And then they persuaded him to be straight man to Jack Benny. And we watched him rehearse, and Jack Benny was so generous. And in the, in the camera rehearsal, the, the singer was terrific. And when it came to the night with the audience, he screwed it up something <laughs> awful. But Benny was still so generous. You know, you watch these, these people and you just take heart and you think this, these are the stars. These are the wonderful people that you take notice of. Mm. You, you know, like a Carol Channing, mm. Mm. who was so wonderful to work for and with. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm rushing ahead because that's what I do. I garble. Oh, no, I, the segue. There's lots here I, to grab onto. It, well, it's, yes. they all kind of interrupt one another, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Mum and Dad, were they happy about a, a career in the arts for you? Mm, oh, eventually. Right, yes. Eventually, when I started to work. I mean, they were, they'd spent all this money for all these years sending me to dancing school, and I was very successful. We used to do a lot of competitions, and I, I won a lot of stuff. So they knew you were good. They knew I was good, mm -hmm. but they were scared because, I mean, in 1961... Uh, pro, you know, pros were considered, still considered vagabonds. You couldn't get insurance for anything if you yeah. worked in theatre, yeah. unless you were a big name. Yeah. You know, a humble dancer. We were, we were the dregs. You know, there was the, uh, it, it, the dancers danced, the singers sang, the actors acted, and the musicians didn't talk to anybody. They were above everybody, you know. The dancers were on the, on the lowest, the singers didn't talk to the dancers, the actors didn't talk to the singers, and the musicians talked to no one, you know. <laughs> but that, that's how it was, and of course the casts were big. Is there representation at this time, or how do you no, go no. from Scarborough and the Audi boyfriend? Audition. You've, you've had, got to move to London. I had to go to London to audition, to get into auditions. a pantomime, yes. Mm -hmm. And and there's, there's a... a a magazine, a paper called The Stage, which is all, and that's where all the auditions were listed. Everybody bought The Stage every week and lots of, and there was always a permanent one. Only beautiful, only really beautiful girls need apply. Really? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so you're serving an apprenticeship, aren't you? You're, you're oh, training yeah. on the job. Yes. Mm. And I did these summer seasons, which were, were three, three years in a row, which were basically um, concert party. They had the dubious title of, go, of gay time. <laughs> and, uh, but the, and the first lot I did, there were three shows. And the second lot were the two shows. Um, but it was, it was of the ilk that if they needed somebody for a sketch and they said to me, what are you doing at this time? Oh, nothing. I'm, you're in this. We need you to sing this song. We need you to do this. I mean, you were thrown into things which were out of left field, not, you know, out of my comfort zone. But because of Jean, give it a whirl, yeah. give it a go. Yeah. You know, and so these were, I, again, it's in reflection. It's, it's later that you realise how beneficial all this, how real tat some of it was. I mean, most of it was, was rubbish. I used to call them the not the end of the peer show. Because they were the what you'd think of the end of the peer shows, but we never played the end of a peer. <laughs> <laughs> but um, superb for um, learning, great brain food and great, well, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll try it, you know. You eventually work on the West End. In a eventually, couple, couple of uh, oh, uh, many years later, uh, because I did, I, I, Oh, I did a pantomime at the Palladium. That was my first West End. What was that West End show? It was Cinderella with Cliff Richard, who would have been huge at the time. Oh, enormous! Yes, and that was the first time I worked for Pamela actually in the in the panto. She later used me for television. Man, um, wonderful! I turned twenty one during that show, and then at the that year later on, I went to Spain for. I was there for eight months altogether. I lasted six months in the show, managed to get out of that. It was such a terrible show. What was the show? Oh, it was a review. It was just, uh, I don't know that it was called anything at all. And Barcelona or? No, it was in Madrid. Madrid, right. Which I loved. I loved being in Spain. I loved the people, the culture. Um, I I met a a gypsy from Jerez de la Frontera um, who showed me a lot of flamenco. You know, he yeah. took me to the real stuff Great. and and explained things. And, and wonderful. Uh, I had a wonderful time while, while I was in Madrid. Um, but needed to, needed to come home, needed to do some decent work. And so, so I did. And that's when I did all the tellies for Pam. And we did Berlin and Frankfurt and Munich. And, uh, you know, had a, I did two TV shows in Amsterdam. Had a wonderful time. As a, as, a dancer for, as a dancer for the lead artists of the of the program. Yes, yeah. yes. I I never wanted to. I had no ambition. Um, I was asked to choreograph a few things, and and the. Um, I I would have been thrown into choreography had I stayed in the UK. Right. And it was I I could do it, but I always thought there were people who could do it much better. But it wasn't my first love. I liked performing. I like to do it, but I do believe if I'd stayed, that's where I would have been steered. Uh, but I didn't. I came to Australia instead. But I, but I got into this show called Mr. and Mrs. Oh, I had done the pilot of the Tom Jones show, the television series. I didn't do the series, but I did the pilot, and the guest artist was Juliet Prowse. Ah. 
and I got to dance with Juliet Prowse. Uh, not once, but twice. I did a tele another telly with her, and she was one of the nicest people, one of the best pros I've ever worked with. And wasn't Juliet Prowse in um, Promises, Promises? No, she no. did. No, she did. Um, um, Sweet Charity, which I saw just before I went to Spain, and she was brilliant. She was wonderful, and she actually, I'm going to cut to also, when Lamond was living in L.A., and I went to visit her, and she lived with this Japanese guy who was an acupuncturist, no, no, acupressurist, and Juliet Prowse was one of his clients, and he said he didn't know how she danced, let alone how she walked he didn't know how she walked let alone dance no. with the, the hip problem that she had um, so Mr and Mrs it was written by an Australian John Taylor John Taylor and Ross Taylor directed and choreographed it it was based on two of Noel Coward's plays um, Fume Doke and what was the other one um, I know it's, it's, um, it's, it's right. Close Encounter that's Brief Encounter Brief Encounter Brief Encounter and um, anyway, so they turned these into musical pieces and um, they weren't very successful. Let's just put it that way. Well, 44 performances at the Palace Theatre. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, that wasn't... We did, we did follow Cabaret in which had a slightly more successful run. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but obviously, yes, through your career, you've been in hit shows, but you've been in shows that haven't been so successful. Yes. What's uh, that like? That, that must be a huge disappointment. You've been, oh, it is. It's terribly disappointing. Um, uh, because you work so hard and the expectation, you know, the hope is to have work, to have money, um, to have a job for a while, and then, it, and then the public don't come. Uh, so you kind of, you know... And if, if we knew what would bring the public in, you'd bottle it, wouldn't you? Well, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And you think, oh, this is, this is going to be... This is going to run for, you know, <laughs> for hours. <laughs> Tell me about Promises, Promises. Promises, Promises. Well, Betty Buckley was the leading lady. And Tony in that. And, and Donna McKechnie. Donna, well, yes. And, uh, well, it was virtually an all-American cast... There were very few uh, English actors, performers in it originally, and Michael Bennett had choreo was choreographing the show. I auditioned for him in London, uh, uh, so, so got there as a dancer. And when we were in rehearsal, now, Bayork Lee, who owns a chorus line, um, she was dance captain for the Broadway show. And she wanted to come to London to restage the, the choreography. And for some reason, Bennett wouldn't let her. And he sent this other woman called Betsy Hogg to restage. And she was very beautiful, very tall, fabulous dancer, legs up to her armpits, sarcastic as all get out. And we knew that Donna McKechnie was coming over to open the show, to, be, to do the first two or three months, I think two months of the show. Now the girl who was rehearsing in her stead was very, very good and Betsy painted this terrible picture of Donna. Uh, honey, don't stand there, that's where Donna stands and <laughs> honey, you wouldn't want to be standing there. And this, and this awful picture of this woman, mm. Donna McKechnie, and we kept thinking, well, this girl's brilliant. 
who's rehearsing in her place. An English girl. An English girl. Mm-hmm. Who is this? Who is this Donna McKechnie? Who does she think she is? And of course, well, she arrived just uh, just a week or so before the show opened. Because you'd have no idea who we this no legendary idea, person We had no idea who Donna McKechnie yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and of course, she put on the rehearsal gear and when it took her place and they started Turkey Lurkey and we all went... Oh, that's why. Okay. (laughs) And of course, she turned out to be the most beautiful person. She got on, we got on with her like a house on fire. She was divine. She was Donna McKechnie, as everybody knows her. And we ratted on on Betsy, something wicked. We said, she's no friend of yours, love. (laughs) (laughs) And we told her all the wicked things she'd said about her. And um, so, but if, you know, Donna was Donna. Just, oh God, what a what bliss to watch that woman work, mm-hmm. to watch her dance. Or uh, Miss Buckley. Betty the- was divine. Ah, now I've got a story there. Re- it, when we were in tech runs, all the Americans came. Uh, Hal David, Bert Bacharach, every everybody came from from America. And <clears throat> Bacharach organised the sound in the theatre for the orchestra. Um, and um, one day, all the dancers were in the bar of the Prince of Wales Theatre, hanging around because it, technically it was a nightmare on stage, the show, the moving furniture and everything. And um, we're all lounging around in the bar and in comes Bert Bacharach and Betty Buckley. And he sits down at the piano in the bar area and he starts to coach her in her big number, knowing when to leave. Well, Bert Bacharach, piano, Betty Buckley, coaching session. You can't buy that, no. you know. And, you can't get and I'm going to jump forward again to 94 when we went with Hot Shoe. Now, before we even opened, one of the first, first things we did was a, a perform at the um, Olivier Awards. And we're standing in the stalls for the rehearsals and in comes Betty Buckley. And I said, oh, because she, she came to London to replace Patti Lapone for um, Sunset Boulevard. So I went over to her and I said, look, you, you probably won't remember. I was in there. And she said, you went to Australia. <laughs> and she did remember me. And I said, yes, you know, and I said, I've come here with this. Show. It's the first time I've played London since Promises. She said, me too. And I said... I've got this great memory of you being coached by Baccarat. And she said, that's one of my big memories also. She said, what about that? What about, because she was 20. This was, this was her first real big role. And here she is being taken to a bar area, being coached by the great Bert Baccarat. Now, yeah. now, the gift of that for you is that that was a time before mobile phones where things could be found ah, or whatever. So yes. that's, that's just unique and yes. precious to you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so there, I mean, they're, they're wonderful moments that you treasure. Mm. Now, Jack, not many people I know who have been in an Oscar-winning Best Picture. Oliver. Oliver. I know. How did that happen? Oh... I was just I just auditioned. There was the, the, you know they were they wanted dancers, and um, they wanted a lot of dancers. In fact, while we were while we were, I think either filming or rehearsing, I just did two numbers. I did Who Will Buy. I was one of the guards, 
you can't see me. And I did Consider Yourself, where I get quite a good look in. I, a couple of areas where I get a good show in there. However, we were, I know we were on the set of Who Will Buy, and Dee Dee Wood came over be, uh, because she was choreographing the movie of Chitty Bang Bang at the time. And she came over to Honor White, our choreographer. And they had known each other for years. They danced in the chorus of Broadway shows together. Honor and Dee Dee, and she kept, Dee Dee came begging for dancers. She said, can you spare anyone? There was no one left in London. To do Chitty. To do Chitty. Uh -huh. They were all on Oliver. And that was amazing. That was, uh, and funnily enough, I watched it not that long ago. Um, Paul was here and we were watching something and I flicked over and, and um, it was just before Consider Yourself. It was on television, and I said, oh, let's just watch Consider Yourself. I'll have a look at myself. And we ended up watching the whole thing. And it, God, it's a good movie. Oh, yes, it's great. Yeah. It's such a, And I hadn't actually seen it for years, yeah. you know? There are so many great musicals like that. You think, I'll just have a look at this number. And then you stay there until the I closing know, credits. And to actually see again that amazing crescent. Mm. And years later, a friend of mine was going to London, and he said, can you tell me where that white crescent is? <laughs> they filmed Oliver. <laughs> It isn't. It isn't, and um, it was that was that was brilliant. We rehearsed on it while it was being built, right. and then we filmed that. We rehearsed it. We've, we'd already uh, rehearsed "Consider Yourself" in a studio. Um, we rehearsed and filmed "Who Will Buy" in situ, and they were building everything around us. They built the park in front. And they planted trees there. They built the little ponds, everything. And um, then when it was all over, we went across to the other set, to the Consider Yourself set, changed all the clothes and everything, and, and uh, filmed that. And they started to pull the crescent down. Oh. And we had had the most brilliant summer. And so who will buy? I, there'll never be a day so sunny. They were all days like that. And they were, it's brilliant. And as we went across to film Consider Yourself, the weather started to change. It got later in the year and the weather. And so they were pulling it down as the clouds were over, you know. And it was so sad to see this magnificent crescent being disassembled while the clouds was kind of weeping, you know, <laughs> commenting on the fact that it was going. <laughs> That, that's that's sometimes a crucial moment for performers too, isn't it? To have closure that that show yes. now is put to bed. Yes, and um, and what, fun do you, what do you like when a show finishes? Are you able to just pack up your dressing room and leave? Well, it depends. It depends what, what the, the show, show was. <laughs> sometimes I can't wait. But also in 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 Oliver, consider yourself. I was one of the last people in the last shot, and. From the from all these hundreds of people and hundreds of and and around the around there there were not extras these were character people and some of them had topped the bill in variety uh, in their day and we got them to perform one one afternoon. Um, the, somebody said, "Oh, somebody get up and do something," and I said, "You come on, you old you old timers, come on, show us young people what it's really all about." And they did. They got up and did their old acts, yeah. their old variety acts. And these were the people who were dotted around. And then when we came to film, there were extras as well, hanging in the windows and, you know, who didn't do anything at all. But you see, when you see the movie, all these different, wonderful character people 
around around the place and uh, you know you get this huge long view of the whole street and the train going across the top and everything and as as the filming got down it got less and less and less and less and, and the shots got shorter and you know shorter and shorter and then and, and there were less people every day there'd be less people to film and I was in the last shot and there were only sort of a handful of people in the on and and that was sad too when yeah. you just saw this from this great mass of people disintegrate dwindle 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 until there was no more no more so 1970 uh, you, you moved to australia i was in promises and i said i said you know i i, I had an 18 month contract and a dear friend was in was in the show uh, jody hall who had been a williamson's lovely before he came to london so and an australian fellow. an australian mm -hmm. dancer and um, I said, you know what? I've always wanted to go to Australia. I'll save me money, and I'll go when the show finishes. I might, I might take myself off as a vacation, I, or well, I just have a look. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, I might just have a look. An adventure. Yes. And um, Jody said, well, why don't you try to go for ten quid? You know, be a ten pound pom. Go to Australia House and see if they'll send you over for ten pounds. And I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. I'm a Corrine. They don't want Corrines. They want real people, you know, lawyers and doctors. And he said, give it a whirl. So I went to Australia House and I signed a form. And at the top of it, it said it could take from six to 18 months before you hear back from us. And I'm terrific. Three months later, they booked me on a ship. And you were still I don't know how. Promises? I was still I was three, three months into the contract, right. into promises. Mm -hmm. So I went to Australia House and, and they said, you can't do this to me. And I've got this contract. And they said, OK, we'll cancel that. Three months later, another booking, another ship. I cancelled that. And three months after that, I was booked on a plane. I mean, it had taken nine months. It should have taken six to 18 months before I even heard anything. So I went to the management and I said, you told them my plight. And they understood because I was telling them, all the, all the while, and I was told that I had to go and present myself to Binky Beaumont. Big producer the in the West End. Binky Beaumont. Oh, lovely, yes, lovely. the contemporary of Coward and yeah. Boulet and the, the Olivier's and all of those, Gertrude Lawrence. And so I went to his tiny office, he's still working then, in this, the tiniest elevator, the tiniest lift I've ever been in. I, you know, two would have been an absolute squash. and it sort of staggered up to this this office and I met Binky Beaumont and I, I had a letter for him and I had all the paperwork. Anyway, the, the bottom line was they let me go. And when I left the show, I went up north to see my folks and, you know, spend some time before I left. And in that time, in that interim, Betty Pounder had come to London because she they were doing promises in Australia and she had been to Broadway and she came to London to take down the choreography. And she had spoken to Jody because they were, knew each other very well. And um, she said, tell him there's a job for him when he comes when he comes to Australia. So I found I came back to London to get the plane and saw Jody. And he said, oh, there's a job waiting for you. Said, oh, lovely. So I came to Australia and a week later, um, I was staying in a house with several people and 
I was jet lagged like you wouldn't believe for two weeks I didn't know which end was up and somebody threw this ad at me in the paper saying new Australian musical auditions go for it and it was at the new Philip Theatre opposite Mark Foy's for a show called Mr and oh no When We Are Married the J.B. Priestley play turned into a musical and relocated to Australia and Kevin Johnson was choreographing, playing in it, and Jill Perryman was the star, so was Johnny Lockwood. In the cast was Johnny Ladd, um, Henry Zepps in his first musical, uh, Ray Park, Susan Swinford. I mean, that stellar cast, this yeah. wonderful cast. Yeah. And uh, Dolores. Dunbar. Dolores Dunbar. Or Dolores Ernst. Dolores Dunbar. Ernst, yes. And... Um, so I, I auditioned and not only did I get into the show as a dancer, but they foolishly gave me the role of juvenile lead. Much to their horror, I think. So you'd only done the, chorus before? I'd only done chorus. No, no, no. Yes, and that's all I wanted. That's all what I went for. I went to dance and I, I knew I was in, I got into promises anyway. But that was in Melbourne and that was weeks away. Anyway, they said, yes, you've got the job. So I did that, but... I knew all about the firm from Jody in London. I knew all about Williamson's and what they had done and the people and the, and the shows. But what I had no idea about was when I went to work in um, When We Are Married was that I went to work for all the people who did the Philip Street reviews in Sydney. It was Bill Orr and Eric Duckworth and Bill Orr was directing and all these wonderful people. Barbara Winden was in the cast and she had done all these Philip Street... I, so I thought I'd landed in a pot of jam because I learned all about the Sydney Review um, uh, side of, 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 of theatre. And um, I absolutely loved it. I loved all the history of all of that. And it was so different from the big musicals, which I knew about. Mm. You know, that was my world. You know, this would have been my world had I been born earlier because I loved review. Um, but so I, I did that. It didn't run. It, it did. But music was by Tommy Tico. You know, there was some good stuff in it, but it didn't. It didn't work. It didn't translate. It's a very broad Yorkshire play. Right. And on the page, that's what you that's how you read it you know it come comes off the page with a yorkshire a yorkshire accent you know and it doesn't switch to australia mind you all the all, all the actors were english so they came to rehearsal with these with these yorkshire accents anyway just saying that they lived in bathurst <laughs> <laughs> so i make no wonder and the only one the only one that was such a fish out of water was barbara Winden because they kept to the original script and she had dialogue as the maid, that she just kept saying, I don't know what this means. I don't understand this. <laughs> but unfortunately, it, it didn't work. But I, I, as I say, I jumped into my own personal pot of jam, meeting the, all these lovely people. You've had lifelong relationships. A lifelong relationship. And I got to work with again, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, Johnny Ladd remained a dear, dear friend until he died. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Jill and I had worked together again, 
um, and Kevin. Um, but so, yeah, love, I, I, I'm really glad I did that. And I'm really glad I didn't do Promises because I saw it. And what they had done was what they did in, on Broadway, which was to cover the orchestra pit. And they had a little bubble for the, for the conductor to show his head through to conduct. And, of course, the sound was awful. They did it on Broadway. Well, it is, and the the idea that Bacharach had originally was to have a recorded sound, because that was his world recording. And so they 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 had amplifiers all the way around the the theatre in um, America and New York. But of course, they couldn't do that. They they had still the two big speakers on either side in Melbourne, and of course, you couldn't hear in London. They didn't cover the pit, and that's why Bacharach came out and he organised the whole sound for, for all the, the instruments. And in the score of Promises, each number um, identifies a, a particular instrument. A particular instrument has headlines, you know, is picked out for that number. It's very clever. Very clever. And he, he organised all of that in London, which wasn't reproduced in Melbourne. And uh, and I was kind of glad that I that I wasn't in it. So what's the first gig you score at Williamson's? Is that uh, Nanette? Or? No, no, Nanette. Oh. Um, I had. I have to I have to tell you that uh, the between times after after when we are married, I was asked to join Ronnie Arnold's contemporary dance company, what? something I had never done before. I'd never done contemporary, and and his stuff was really contemporary. Because he, he hadn't been in the country long, had he? Because no, I, he arrived I, with West Side Story. West Side Story and stayed, but he had formed before this. He had formed a couple of times um, his company, and that's when I met Rabina Beard, mm. uh, because she was his his right hand woman, and um, but he'd formed this other company. It was this was his third company he'd formed, and he had a live jazz band who wrote the music, which I said was in hat sizes, you know, six and seven eighths. Five and three quarters. <laughs> it was so difficult, and um, but I did that, and we did a little a little regional sort of tour. It wasn't very successful, but I oh I, ha- I hope you don't mind me nick- nicking this. At the same time, I was approached by the Halliday sisters, who ran this who ran this um, very very good ballet school in Sydney, very respectable, and they asked me to perform the dandy in their production of the Blue Danube and it was to a one-off performance at the Mosman Town Hall in a gala evening which Ronnie's company had been asked to open and they were closing the program with this classical thing the Blue Danube they wanted me to do the dandy and they got in oh I said yes to everything of course and now they got in Carl Wellander who was a, who a retired um, principal from the Australian Ballet to teach me the role because it was one of his party pieces so he taught me the role and I to- double toured and pirouetted myself to a standstill in the solo and we got to Mosma Town Hall and I did Ronnie's performance to begin with and now the the guys in the you know the people in his show had never seen me do anything other than Ronnie's work and so I'm getting changes. What do you do? I'm in the I'm in the ballet. <laughs> what? So they're in the they're in the wings, and I'm I'm, you know, 
double touring myself, pirouetting, grandjetting myself, and they're in the they're in the wings agog, and I kept, you know gave them a bit of a wink, and the Halliday sisters are standing there saying, "Don't camp it up, don't camp it up." <laughs> <laughs> so I did this classical ballet, and who should be in the audience but Peggy Van Prague? And afterwards, she was very complimentary to me. And there is a little tag to this, because a couple of weeks later, I got a review in the Australian Dance Magazine. And it, I, par I should have kept it, and I'm paraphrasing like mad, but it said something like, unfortunately, Jack Webster wasn't able to show his true potential in the first half of the programme with Ronnie Arnold's dance company, as he was later dancing the dandy in the Blue Danube, and went on to give me a rave review <laughs> for the sort of dancing I didn't do, and a, and a sort of very watery review for the sort of dancing I did do. So that was my one and only crit for a classical that's the only my one and only classical ballet so you see the royal ballet missed out they did miss out I big time say, yes did you stay long with ronnie's company no it was a very short um run and um it 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 didn't last unfortunately he was very disappointed with that but um i choreographed a couple of shows at capriccio's the drag show that had newly opened um and then I got into Anything Goes, which is where I met Tony Lamond, my darling Tony Lamond. We've been dear, dear friends ever since. And Sheldon, you know, Tony, he was still at school. He was in a school uniform when I first met him, you know, and we did, we did that. And unfortunately, that was one of the shows that we thought would run. That was one of those shows that was disappointing. Was that, and Tony Gapen was... Tony Gapen was, uh, was Billy. Yeah. Yeah and Raider Park, and Ron Fraser was uh, Moonface. Moonface. Darling man, Ron. And, but it, it, it didn't last, but while we were doing that, Betty Pounder came to see the show, and I had heard that Carol Channing was coming to Australia. Now, I had seen her act in London before I, before I left, and she had 10 men with her. It was, Carol and her ten stout-hearted men, but she was bringing it with a cut-down, cut-down version, time-wise and boy-wise. She wanted, she was bringing one with her, who was had re-choreographed it and cut it down, and she wanted to pick up five boys. So I said to Pounder, "I'm not asking, I'm telling you, I'm I'm in this show." As one of the and, five. Yes, as one of the five. And she said, "Oh yes, absolutely." So I I got that, and of course Channing was one of the greatest pros I have ever worked with. She was a true pro. She rehearsed that show for the, the last two weeks of rehearsal, full out, once in the morning, once in the afternoon, with change of costume. In this mucky church, well, it wasn't mucky after she got in there, she made them clean. I don't think that place had been cleaned, but she had so many allergies, you know, and she had special food and all of this, that and the other. But um, she was fantastic and fantastic to work with. She was very generous, wonderful, and we did that show. And the next thing I did was um, No No Nanette with Sid Charisse, Chalk and Cheese. Channing was a woman of the theatre. Sid Charisse was a movie star. Yeah, big difference. Big difference big difference she wasn't awful 
but she wasn't approachable you know you could approach her but she'd rather you didn't and there's there's a love there's a lovely story and of course freddie carpenter directing and by this time i had i decided to wear some bracelets and things and he, he started calling me bangles so that was my name forever that forever after i was bangles and um uh when she let she she was only there for i think three months i left the show very early i went back to england and we won't talk about that at all. Yvonne DiCarlo. Yvonne DiCarlo took over. Took over from Charisse. Right? From Sid Charisse. I saw her in performance. She was fabulous. Sid, oh, and another interesting point is that, you know, until No No Nanette in Melbourne, Sid Charisse had never put on a pair of tap shoes in her life. And how did she fare? Oh, she was not bad. She knew how to tap, you right. see. She, she had done, done all those tap steps in the movies, but of course everything was done. Yeah. And when you see it, she's always wearing little flats. And well, nobody's wearing taps on their shoes in the actual movie, it's all dubbed in. But she had never worn a pair of tap shoes until No No Nanette. That's a little interesting fact there, a little Very, bit of trivia there trivia. for you, Dan. Was, was Channing with her husband manager? Yes. At the time? yes. Charles. Charles, who was Charles. A, bit, a bit dubious in the oh, end, wasn't he? Oh, was, he, was, <laughs> he was naff. He was naff. He was, he was absolute antithesis, opposite of her. Mm. Is antithesis the right word, or am I saying no, something? No, no, you're, you're quite All right, right. Yeah. okay. Um, he was, she, she was gorgeous, and he wasn't. You know, but I, I I got to sing a solo line with her in one of her songs off stage, oh. and she they they lined us all up, and there were three booth singers. Tony Gapen was one, and Teddy Ashton, somebody else, and um, they lined everybody up, and they played the track that they wanted. It was just one line of a song, a country western song, and um, I won't try to sing it because I'll cough, but um, it. They said, oh, you, the, the, the MD said, oh, you, you can do it. Now, what? And I'm seeing this harmony line with, with, and I said to, to Patsy Gape, and I said, but why me? And he said, because you sound like her. Because I, <laughs> I just copied her voice. <laughs> I just sang the, the whole line exactly like her. <laughs> I, I just had a flashback from, to a miniseries called Cyclone Tracy. Oh, yes. In which you played a drag queen, I, I which did. was very Carol Channing esque. Well, I was attempting a Carol Channing. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> love it. Love it. Yeah. So, Williamson's obviously produced that tour, did they? The Channing tour. Was that how No, that Pounder was Brodziak. Was right. Ken Brodziak. But Pounder was involved, was she? Pounder was, was casting? involved in, in casting. All right. Um, but, and um, we were supposed to do uh, two weeks in. in Melbourne two weeks in Sydney. Uh, the Theatre Royal had closed uh, prior to it being demolished, and um, but they promised to open it for Channing, and they reneged on that promise. So we were four weeks in Melbourne, and the the audiences dwindled. You know, the first two weeks were fabulous; the second two weeks weren't so good. Uh, but Brodziak managed to managed to get two performances at the Regent in Sydney, and th on a Sunday, and they sold out in half an hour. And we had done two shows on the Saturday, fly to Sydney, do two shows in Sydney. <laughs> Roger said, do you think you could do a third? <laughs> do you think we should squeeze in three? And Channing said, I don't think so, Ken, no. So, 
But um, but she, as I say, she was she was wonderful, and Sid was that. Uh, the other story I was going to tell was after I had left the show, and she was about to leave the show, and the dancers had a whip round, and they bought her a gift, which they gave her. This is the story I heard. They gave her between shows on her last Saturday. And she was absolutely gobsmacked by this. I don't know what the gift was. And she said, I don't, this is incredible. She said, because, you know, when we were at MGM, she said, we weren't allowed to associate with the dancers at all. Apart from rehearsal and film, we weren't allowed to sit or talk or get to know any of the dancers. She said, because we were the stars. So that explained why she was so distant. Yes, yeah, yeah. because she, her upbringing was, you don't, talk to the you know the chorus and um and she and she said she looked at the gift and apparently she said so i you know i really don't know what to say and one of the boys said well perhaps you could start with hello <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating isn't it how that those classist uh, levels existed for a while and yes. you talk about london and the the dancers weren't spoken to by the singers that's and right vice versa, because it's such a collaborative yeah experience theatre. Well it, it is but but yeah, they were big casts mm. and each had their section you were put in your place, you put in your pigeonhole but of course as, as theatre has gone on of course all that has, has diminished and there the, in my day, you know, in my younger day the triple threat was a rarity mm. you know they were like hen's teeth You had a singing chorus and a dancing chorus That's right and Maybe you might have a star who was a triple threat who could do everything. Now everybody has to be a triple threat. You have to be able to do all or quadruple in some or quadruple play an instrument. Play instrument. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know. So, um, but anyway, um, no, no, Nanette was was a stunning show, and the cast was the cast was wonderful. And I I had a little Rosie Sturgis, lovely Rosie Sturgis. She played the maid. She she? Played the the maid. Cleaner, yeah. Yes, and and one time one of the one of the boys she had she went on one of her entrances was with a, a carpet bag. And one of the boys put stage weights into it one time and she, she actually picked it up and walked on and went, oh! <laughs> she struggled on. She kept going with this weighted down carpet bag. She was such a pro. and But at the end of the show, for some reason, she and I ended up together. And the the end of No, No, Nanette, everybody gets married. You know, and, and, so, and um, so this great thing. And... Rosie would turn and give me this really flirtatious look and I would do something or other. I don't know what it was. But much, much later after the show, I ran into Rosie and she said, I'll never forgive you for leaving. She said, I never got my laugh when after you left. She said, I never got my laugh at the end of the show. She, so whoever who was partnering her never what, reacted Delivered to... Delivered what she wanted. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Irene, quickly Irene. follow, 974. Irene. Playing the Ninth Avenue fella. Irene in a cast list, that, that was your... your I was your a Ninth part. Avenue fella. A ninth Avenue was fella. that my title? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that was... Oh, what, what fun that was. And, of course, Julie being her first... Julie Anthony. An, anything, really. Yeah. It, that was Pounder again. Pounder was a magician. I mean, she picked her up from a, uh, her club act. She saw in a club act. <laughs> 
and said, that's our Irene. And so Julie, Julie learned everything, you know, on the hoof by as much she learned to dance on the, because it was, it was what was required. You know, she just did everything because it was needed, it was necessary. And of course she was wonderful. That fabulous, fabulous voice. Yeah. And the cast was heaven with, with Noel Ferrier. That, that was the first time I'd met Sir Noel, as I called him, the wickedest actor in Australian history, I think. <laughs> Tell us about Noel. Cause, um... Noel, he was... He, well, I worked with him again in a tour of My Fair Lady where he took, uh, took uh, replaced... Uh, um, uh, Warren Mitchell. What? No, no, um, no. Question. It was before that. This was with, with Wagstaff, and um, pl playing Pickering, Peter Collingwood, lovely Peter Collingwood, and he replaced Ferrier came in and was so naughty. He's the only person ever to have completely corpsed Stuart Wagstaff, and I saw it. I was on this. I was dance captain for the show, so I was sort of watching a lot, and. He, he did, never had to do much, Ferrier. He, he had to do very little to get what he wanted, the laugh. And he just did something or other and Wagstaff just corpsed and fell on the floor. He disappeared behind a chaise longue. And it's the, he's the only person. But the, the trick with Ferrier was that it was never an in-on-stage joke. He always took the audience with him. Yes. He, he, he included the audience, so everybody knew he was being naughty, you know? And he just couldn't help himself, because he said, oh, I get bored after opening night. <laughs> <laughs> but he was divine, and he would always manage to... He would, there was a semicircle on stage at the, at, at the end of the show, and he was always... He was, I was prompt side, he was Opie, always managed to walk right around the semicircle very, very slowly and come to me and give me something. Old lottery tickets, anything. One, one time, it was a great big jewelled hat pin. One, one, it was a sugar pig and it would give me silly things. He would, and it would be, you know, oh, here he comes again. But, you know, about three... You look forward to it. About three times a week, he would just slowly circumvent the, the semicircle and there, there you go, I had something. I loved him. I loved Sonoma. And, and of course he used to corpse those poor two girls, Pamela Gibbons and, and um, Joni Brock, who were his, not his offsiders, because there was, um, um, what's her name, Doreen Warburton was his double, you know, his, his couple. Um, and she gave as good as she got to him, of course. But the but Pamela Gibbons, who later was replaced by Nancy, because Pamela never did a whole show. She would only sign for so many months. I don't know why, but she, she only, same with the chorus line, she would only sign for so many months to play Sheila. And then she left and was replaced. And so Nancy came in to replace. And that's where Nancy and I got to know one another, was when she replaced uh, Pamela in Irene. Irene. But before that... But, Ferrier gave them such hell and they had a wonderful number the three of them together we're getting away with it was the number and they had a oh it was a rollicking time and um, the audiences just loved it it was looked it looked beautiful again Freddie Carpenter directing his his taste was was wonderful 
He had a, he'd a the last time I saw Freddie, um, he, he directed all the Danny LaRue shows, both in London and Australia. And he had, Danny was, came out to Australia to do one of his big shows. And I got tickets to the opening night at the Regent Theatre in Sydney. And I'm standing at the lights opposite, opposite the theatre. And uh, along comes this taxi. The door flies open and out falls, like, like Eddie in, in Ab Fab, you know. Out falls Freddie Carpenter into the gutter, <laughs> drunk as a fool. And he looked up at Barry Wayne, Freddie, and he looked at Bangles, he said. <laughs> And I escorted him across the road to the stage door, and that was the last time I ever saw Freddie Carpenter. <laughs> what a wonderful, pissed. lasting memory. Yes, pissed. Pissed to the gills, he was. <laughs> but a wonderful man and so clever, and did, did so much for theatre um, everywhere he was. He did an awful lot for theatre. Join the Stages podcast next time as we complete this fascinating conversation with Jack Webster. He will pick up from his casting and subsequent success as Tulsa in the legendary original Australian production of Gypsy, a role he owes to J.C. Williamson's matriarch, Betty Pounder, who recognised and nurtured a talent in Jack to embrace principal roles in productions, a talent that was to see him forge forth in a grand list of musical theatre roles, in a chorus line, Chicago, Annie, Dames at Sea, and a show that would take him back to the West End, Hot Shoe Shuffle. A companion episode not to be missed. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.